Welcome back to Zillennials Podcast. Today on Zillennials, we're doing a book club on The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. We also have a special guest. We've got Ruhika here. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Um, it was so much fun last time, and I love your book club podcast. Book clubs are honestly one of my favorite things to do. I think they're super fun. We normally start off our book clubs with Leon giving us a little bit of information about the author. So do you want to give us a little bit of info, Leon? As usual, this is taken off the author's website, so we'll have that link below. Um, she's The author is Britt Bennett, and she earned her MFA in fiction from the University of Michigan. And she's also written many different essays for different magazines like The New Yorker and New York Times Magazine. That and then Vanishing Half is her second novel. I don't remember exactly where I heard it, heard about it to begin with. If we're being honest, again, it's probably Novel Pairings podcast. But the reason that I wanted to read it was because it reminded me of Passing by Nella Larson, which I read in high school. Have either of you read that? No, I haven't. But I was mentioning to Kaylee that it reminded me of The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, which I also read in high school. I have not read either of those, but now they are on my to-be-read list. I think Passing is actually quite short, so if you need something to just get back in the reading swing, um, I think it would be a good one to start with. For anyone who's listening, since they are so similar, Passing is basically two childhood friends that are African-American, but like in The Vanishing Half, when they grow up, they kind of, they're not in contact, but then one is passing as white and marries a white man, but doesn't tell him. And then the other person in passing occasionally passes for white. So that transitions into this book, which is The Vanishing Half and reminds me of our last episode um, from Cloud Cuckoo Land. This is a multi-perspective, multi-timeline like timeline novel, which if you've listened to other ones, you know how I feel about that. And it <laughs> follows the... Anyone know how to say that? I thought it was Vines. Did you listen to it, Kaylee? I did listen to it on audiobook. They pronounced it Vines. Oh, oh, you mean their last name, Vignet. It's French. Yeah. Because it's, like it's like New Orleans French, I believe. Okay. We'll go with that. Could be wrong. Someone should correct <laughs> me. <laughs> but um, you know what? We're just going to stick to their first names. So it follows these two twins. Desiree and Stella, who grew up in a small black town in the south, and in this town, a lot of the residents have a lighter skin tone, and the town is kind of known for that. And so the twins run away when they're 16 and basically live their separate lives. And then a couple years later, um, it follows their adult lives, primarily Stella's. I don't think it goes into Desiree's all that much. But it follows Stella's adult life. It talks a little bit about Desiree's adult life. And then it kind of focuses on their two daughters. So Stella's daughter is Kennedy. And then Desiree's is Jude. So it talks about kind of how they find each other and meet up. And then it also kind of focuses on the sisters' relationship a little bit in their older years as well. Is there anything anyone wants to start with in particular? Um, so what do you guys think of the author's writing style? I really liked it. I thought that the author had a good writing style. I know that, Leon, you usually have some <laughs> beef with the uh, multiple perspectives over a long timeline, but I feel like it really worked for this novel. I think that having those different perspectives gave you enough of a taste of everybody's different lives that it kept it very entertaining. And I think like at first, the book felt a little slow to me. Like I was like, oh, I don't know how I feel about this. But once we kind of found Stella's perspective, I feel like it picked up a lot from there because I became like super interested in, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Are they ever going to reunite? Like, I feel like it just kind of snowballed from there for me. Yeah, so... I always hate in podcasts when they reference something from a past episode. And then if you haven't listened to it, you have no idea what they're talking <laughs> about. So we're going to summarize my feelings really quick. It's not necessarily that I don't like it because I like books with this type of style. It's just I feel like it's been over overdone recently. 
But I agree with Kaylee that I really like this one. And I don't remember my experience reading the first parts of the book, but I do think overall it was a relatively quick read for me. I do think that one pitfall of the multi-narrator style is that sometimes I don't care about particular characters or particular chapters as much. And so I kind of tend to rush through those. I don't think that was a big problem with this book, but I think Kayla was mentioning I probably preferred Stella's storyline a little more than the chapters about like Early and Desiree. I didn't, no offense to Early, I didn't really care as much about them. No, that's super interesting because I, my favorite chapters were actually like the Jude and Desiree kind of chapters, which is super interesting, just how different people take the books differently. But no, I I agree with you. I think, Leanne, I think that the multiple perspective kind of books have been coming out with steam this pa- these past couple of years. I think it was actually the book, like the whole Six of Crows series by Lee Bardugo. I think is that that's what the author's name. Um, ever since that book came out and just like the general Six of Crows and um, just the general Six of Crows series. I think everybody has seen that style, seen has seen that it's worked um, and seen the benefits of like being able to have multiple voices within their books. And so it's just been out there. But this book does remind me of one of my all time favorite books. I mentioned it before, which is the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver, which is, I want to say, pre Six of Crows fan fair um but i read that book in high school and it's very similar in the multiple perspectives um and just kind of like these tensions of someone being placed in a different setting and how race religion kind of all intermingles uh so definitely recommend that book i think for me it does depend kind of like leanne was saying on the book This was one of those books that was a little bit slower read for me at first until I kind of understood where it was trying to go with everything. And once I did, then it became a quicker read. But overall, I think I liked it. I think there must have been some serious research that went into this book, which made me appreciate the author's writing style a little bit more. Definitely. So this is a question that I have that's kind of related, but also kind of not related. So do you remember back in like the 2000s, 2010s, when everybody was writing like dystopian novels? Ooh, like the Divergent series? Yes. I wonder if like this multiple perspectives thing is going to be like what people remember from like this decade as being like the hot thing for books to do. Ooh, yeah, because there was definitely like the Twilight, everybody needs to be a vampire or you need to have at least one werewolf or vampire in in your novel to like make it work timeline part or part of the timeline then there was the like you know dystopian divergent hunger games maze runner wow looking back on it there were a lot of those huh Um, and a lot of those that actually worked and made it on to be pretty famous and then i wonder what was after it maybe like kind of the princessy phase i could be wrong but i don't know what came after that but yeah the multiple perspective I almost feel like too for young adult and I mean, this book obviously isn't young adult, but I feel like you often see those patterns start in like middle grade and young adult fiction. And then you see it kind of osmos into the adult fiction realm. But yeah, I almost think that in nowadays, like the patterns seem to be these multiple perspectives, like you were saying, and I almost feel like now they're almost aging up middle grade and YA books where I feel like they could stand alone as an adult book with how advanced they are now. But I think that's also definitely a pattern. So overall, what did you think of this book? What were your overall impressions? Would you recommend it? How did you feel about it? I really liked it. It was a surprising read for me. The first time I read this book was, I want to say, a year or two ago. I read it, I will fully admit, because of the hype. It won Book of the Year for Book of the Month, I think, and maybe won a bunch of other awards, I'm sure. Um, And the cover called to me. I know it didn't call to other people, but it did call to me. I did really like the cover. Um, I'm also just a big fan of color. So yeah, I really liked it. So I picked it up because of the fanfare. 
Um, expecting it to be, I feel like when things win a lot of awards, they are very poignant um, with like their message and stuff. So I expected that. Um, I don't know what I was expecting overall, though. I think this was new territory and topic for me. I was reading a lot of nonfiction at the time about race relations and racial identity issues. And so, yeah, it was interesting to see kind of those kinds of topics in a fiction style and see it play out. Yeah, I was kind of taken away by this book. I gave it five stars. My second read through of it, I gave it five stars again. I think it's really, it's a book that will stay with me, I think, for a really long time. To Rahika's point, there is, I found a New Yorker article about the book from, I think it came out in 2020, so probably around when the book was releasing. And it obviously discussed The Vanishing Half, but it also talked about the history in literature of discussing race and passing because, like I mentioned, my connection was with the book Passing, but apparently there were a bunch of other authors who prior to this book have also discussed that. So if anybody's interesting, you can read that article. Um, I like the book overall. I think the I think that it would be a good choice for a buddy read or a book club or in a school situation just because of those issues. Like, for example, if you wanted to replace one of those older books with a more modern one, you could use this book. Yeah, I know at my library they have like a bundle pack where you can get like 10 copies and you can just check them out so you can like do a book club. That's a really good idea. I know. I love it. I'm like, I think they also had how much of these hills is gold in like a pack for it. And I was like, oh my gosh, we've read that one too. So I got very excited. But I would definitely agree with you all. I think it's a really good buddy read where like you can pair up with somebody and talk about it just because I feel like there are so many different topics that are addressed within this book that I feel like it's good to kind of talk through with somebody and just kind of get some opinions on it. So I guess one of the big things that we're kind of alluding to is passing. If you haven't read this book and you're just listening to this episode, passing is essentially when this is what I'm gathering from the books. And obviously I have not done it, so not an expert on this, but basically Stella is essentially acting and kind of pretending that she's white. And I think a lot of the things that this book discusses are the privileges that she gets as a result of that. And to contrast that with Desiree and also Jude, because if you haven't read the book, one of the first descriptions of Jude is how dark her skin is. And I guess going to, I think maybe Kaylee or somebody put a question about the foils and how Kenny and Jude, like Kennedy, basically she looks like she's white and at one point like a boyfriend questions when she says she's african-american where in contrast jude doesn't have that option passing is an interesting topic for sure i think this book shows kind of the pros and cons of like what someone can gain if they pass i feel like you see this kind of across cultures at least from my perspective, I am of Indian descent, you know, and I grew up constantly hearing like fair and lovely commercials. That was the big thing. And for those of you guys who don't know what fair and lovely is, it's essentially a bleaching cream. I think in recent years, they've rebranded and changed their name because they've discovered that, you know, it's not good to say that being more white is better. But you constantly like heard from like older Indian aunties about how like fair and white their skin was and how like everyone thought they were like white because, you know, they're just they were so light skinned and that was what you should like aspire to. And I think it is really rooted in this idea of colorism and colonialism that has kind of transgressed and gone through various different generations. And I think that nowadays it's more open the discussion about it and i also think the like knowledge about why colonialism and just this idea of colorism um about like the impacts that it has on people of color 
have really grown, like the knowledge that we have about it. And it kind of, this book is really thought provoking for me because I just think about like, okay, well, yeah, it kind of shows in a sense what my ancestors were probably hoping for if they could be passing, if products like Fair and Lovely did work for them. And it it's kind of sad, honestly, in a way for me, but it's also kind of, I think that's why this book was kind of impactful in a way too, because, you know, for me and others who've grown up in a culture that like really values whiteness for some reason, I think that, you know, it almost makes you appreciate your own kind of loving your own skin a little bit more and kind of realizing the emotional, ethical, you know, even like physical impacts these kinds of things have. Yeah, I think in relation to your point, I think like one of the things that this book really made me do is it really made me check my privilege as a white woman. Like just some of the moments that were captured within the book, for example, when Stella was talking to, I think it was a professor who she worked with and she was like, oh, would you still invite me to a protest if I was black? And the professor was like, well, our paths wouldn't really cross, like kind of avoided the question and just kind of essentially said no. To me, that was shocking. I was like, really? Like, that's why you wouldn't invite someone? And I think it was like made even more so by the fact that like, that was like later on in the book. It wasn't like the 1960s. It was more recent. And I think that that was just really jarring. And I thought that you know, it really makes you check yourself and say, like, these are things that, like, you need to be aware of this. I don't know how to phrase this. But yeah, I think it was very impactful, because it really made me check my privilege and think about just kind of think about how colorism impacts the world around us and is impacting people on an everyday basis. I think what's interesting that this book does is, like Ruhika said, is that it also addresses kind of the conflict Stella has with her passing because you see that she was able to access a house in this community with an HOA. She has this what from the outside looks like this picture perfect life that people would aspire to have. But I think especially as the book goes on, you see a little more of the cost that she had to pay to get that. Like, I feel like she was constantly anxious about someone discovering her secret. Like when they had that HOA meeting and they said, oh, a black family bought a house here. She was the one who stood up and was like, no, like we can't have them here. That type of messaging. And I think part of that was like, I think she might have mentioned it too, was like like the fear that the family would recognize her as being black and then kind of outing her. And so I don't know. I think it's like, it's more complicated than, oh, she passes as white and then she gets all these things. Yeah, and I think that you can also see that in her struggle, like especially when Loretta moved across the street because she wanted to be, you know, good friends with Loretta, but also she had like this conflicting emotion where she was like, I don't know that I can do that just because I need to hide my identity. And what does it say about me? Like, what are the perceptions about me if I am good friends with Loretta? I remember too later in the book, like she gets to the point where she tells Kennedy about her history, but it occurs in a car ride after picking Kennedy up from the airport. And Stella's basically like, ask her questions, I'll answer anything. But it's like once we go home to where the husband is living and he has no idea, she's like, we don't talk about it. So it's like she she never fully, I guess, like reconciles her two worlds. So I think um, that kind of leads to the first kind of big question that we have here where we kind of talk about this, you know, the characters themselves now that we're jumping into it. Um, So we've got Stella and Desiree Beignet, however you want to say it. Someone please correct me. (laughs) And how they grow up identical at first as children, they're like super close. And then we see this kind of you know, New Orleans laundry sequence that kind of pushes them apart. Um, And they become lost to each other and completely out of contact. And they choose these different lives. So what do you think are the series of events? I mentioned kind of their job in New Orleans. 
What do you think are the series of events and experiences that lead to this division and why? And do you think it was like inevitable or do you think it was inevitable or do you think there was a world in which they could have stayed together on the same path? I don't know because in the beginning or the first part, you see Stella passing like it starts with the laundry and then she gets the office job. And then when they didn't question her, she just kept going with that. And then later in the book, you find out that that's not the first time she tried to pass. I don't recall any mentions of Desiree doing that, at least consistently. So I feel like once Stella starts passing, I don't know how she could stay in contact with Desiree and keep it up unless it's like covert phone calls in the middle of the night type thing like I don't think they could ever go anywhere because she would be so concerned about someone else seeing her I think that even though they were twins their personalities were very different so I didn't necessarily like when I was initially reading the book I didn't necessarily see them drifting apart for reasons of like Stella passing at first, I thought it was going to be like a falling out of contact because personality wise, they were different. But I feel like, honestly, I think it was a pretty conscious decision that Stella made to not stay in contact with her family. Like you look at it and Desiree really tried to reach out to her and really tried to find her. Whereas Stella was very much adamant about not being found. Like, she did not want anything to do with her family. Well, I think that she did want something to do with her family, but I think that in order to keep up the illusion of being white, she knew that she had to cut those ties. And I think that that's kind of where it becomes a little bit more like she had a choice, but it's a little bit about how far are you willing to go to keep up this illusion. Yeah. And I feel like, too, that initial kind of scene and those sequences of events that lead to them separating, um, I think that also kind of shows the frustration that comes with people disrespecting you, demeaning you, or just not like getting your worth all because of your race, you know? And I think there were two perspectives on where that frustration kind of led and that was a big thing of the book as well and I think I know like in that scene I felt the anger of like as hard of a worker as you can be like there was a barrier to them getting anywhere yeah it was just kind of interesting and to see I think that was one of the harder parts of the book for me to read watching them struggle um trying to make it on their own you know, after coming from a town where they really didn't have to, if you think about it, they didn't really have to think about the implications of their race too much. They could just be themselves, you know, and I think especially if you're coming from a situation like that to, you know, the great old America where race at the time in the where the book when the book is set plays such a big part i think it's jarring and so seeing that frustration build was kind of heartbreaking and i think you also see some of that frustration with jude as well because jude in the book is such a hard working person and she just tries to really make a life for herself and there are all of these things that would happen to her that were not because of her personality at all, but pretty much solely because of her race. Like I know, for example, she talked about when she was younger, how the kids at school would tease her or not treat her well. And then as she got older, she would have difficulty like getting certain jobs or running in in certain social circles because of her race. I think it's interesting too when... Jude starts to seek Kennedy out at that theater and it kind of just shows how the split between Stella and Desiree's life affected each of their children because like you were saying Kaylee Jude's working really hard she's trying to put her like pay her way through school she eventually goes to med school that and then on the other hand there's Kennedy who grows up in that nice suburban house and 
then she goes to college, but then she drops out because she wants to be an actor. And just thinking about how, even though Kennedy says her, her parents don't support her whole acting thing, she still had the ability to like drop out of school, take this acting job. And then when Jude shows up, she almost treats Jude like an assistant and like someone who's lesser than her because she's making Jude like, or Jude is kind of like choosing to do it, but not really because she wants the information about the family. And like, that's the only way she, she can basically Kennedy will keep her around. It seems. Yeah. And I think you saw Jude's frustration at that too. Like, you know, when I was reading the book, it was like, she's definitely not happy about this. Not that anyone would be like Kennedy was treating her very poorly and just kind of like insulting. I felt like how she was treating her was just very insulting. I was like, wow, really? Especially knowing that they were cousins, like as the reader, knowing that they're cousins and that she's treating her that way, it really bothered me. Yeah, I think Kennedy in general kind of bothered me. Obviously, she was written to be that way, but she was very, I don't know, she seemed kind of like very sheltered and had like limited knowledge of the world and it was definitely a, like a me 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 kind of vibe yeah and I think this like rudeness that we like see in Kennedy one comes from the fact that like her mother was very racist towards African Americans almost as like a shield you know to be like well I am saying I don't like this race and therefore I can't possibly be that race um, so almost as a shield. And so she grew up in that environment with that mentality. But I also, I don't know, this kind of reminded me, have you guys heard of like the Stanford prison experiment? Yeah, where it's like, in the Stanford prison experiment, essentially, people, these students were randomly assigned prisoner or guard. Um, and there were more detailed details to it. But you saw this like sense of elitism and us versus them being created where the guards just like really took to their rules and they like forced them like they just acted as though they were better and that you know the prisoners were them and we couldn't possibly be prisoners you know like we couldn't possibly be there and you could also see how the prisoners started to like get smaller almost like you know, they're who they were, like, we just kind of became smaller and more meek. And I feel like that whole experiment kind of played out here in this book, in the terms of race, and you see it ever so present when you see Kennedy and Jude, you see how, you know, Kennedy, she was a guard, she like grew up in a family of guards. And she saw them, you know, she saw people who are like, African-Americans as like the prisoners, the metaphorical prisoners in the situation and saw it as an us versus them situation. And you see this sense of elitism in Kennedy of like, well, we couldn't possibly be related because like I'm here high up on my pedestal and you're not even close, you know, rather than seeing everybody as human. And I think that very much plays out in this scene. I feel like that also definitely plays out when she says that remark to Jude about how her boyfriend is with her, where she's like, oh, like, why did he pick you sort of thing? I feel like you definitely see that elitism and that just racism in that comment where she's like, I would think he'd be with someone who's lighter. I was flabbergasted when she said that. I was like, I cannot believe you just said that. And I think part of the reaction to Kennedy saying those things is that as the reader, you know the truth about her family history, but like for a lot of the book, she doesn't. And so I think there was also like for me that tension reading that and then like knowing the truth about her family is just like, I don't know, it was frustrating when reading. Yeah, it reminded me very much. I was listening to. NPR in Vermont, like the radio station ages ago. Um, and I remember reading or hearing this story about, and I think it was on the, like NPR sometimes releases like their podcast episodes on public radio. And I think it was like their code switch podcast is what it was called. 
um, but I could be mistaken. But it was this woman who was an African-American woman who is tracking her family history. And she tracked it back to, I think, this like old historic slave plant or like plantation that had slaves once upon a time. You know, she was talking about how she like met up with the woman, got to the door and the woman was white and like could not believe like, you know, she was just like almost denying their familial relation just on race. And the um, reporter was asking the author of this article um, how she felt about that. And she was just like, it was just like surprising. Like I was showing her all of this evidence that we were related that this happened and she almost like consistently denied it as if, you know, just by saying no would take away the fact that we were blood related, like blood relation, um, just because we didn't look similar. Um, and that's kind of what this situation reminds me of. Yeah. I think as a character, I think Kennedy really just bothered me with her rudeness, with her, privilege with just pretty much everything that she did just really really I did not like her that makes me like think of this question of like nature versus nurture and how we see that kind of play out within these characters um so for example a lot of the characters here are engaged in some kind of performance at some point in the story um regardless of who they are related to in whatever relation. So like Kennedy makes profession of acting and ultimately kind of blurs the line between performance and reality. Um, when they confuse her with that soap opera character, Barry performs on stage in theatrical costumes. Reese takes a new wardrobe and role, but it isn't a costume. And one could say that Stella's whole marriage in that neighborhood is essentially a performance. So what do you think kind of the nature versus nurture element plays into each of the characters, particularly the ones who are of genetic relation to Stella um, and Desiree? Like, how do you think that kind of played out as life moved on for each of these families? I think with Kennedy, a lot of it could be attributed to nurture, how she was raised, because she, I guess until she met Jude, she was never really challenged with her perception of her life, and her parents, like, kind of promoted those ideas, and I don't know, I think it's maybe because you also have Jude to compare her to. It just makes me think that if she was raised in a different situation, you know, maybe she's still selfish. Maybe she's still all these things. But I don't know. I feel like her self, like her idea of self and how she identifies might have been a little more nuanced. I would agree with you. I think that a lot of it comes down to nurture for Kennedy in particular. Because if you look at it, like, a lot of the racism that she shows in the book seems like it was something that was taught. Because initially, she was playing with, what was the girl's name? The girl across the street. I feel like it was Cindy, maybe? Sounds familiar. Um, but she was playing with the girl across the street before her mom came out there and told her, oh, no, we don't play with, like, you essentially shouldn't play with her. So I feel like a lot of what happened with Kennedy was nurture because before she was told to behave a certain way, she was like, no, I can be friends with anybody. And so I think that that plays a big part in her character is she's kind of learned these racist ideas throughout her life. I would say not just from her home, but I would say likely from the community that she grew up in. Two things related to that, um, related to the community point, there's the whole scene where the neighbors are trying to enroll their daughter in the local school, and basically everyone in the neighborhood bands together saying, we don't want you here. And 
the mother says, well, my kid has a right to go here as much as your kid has the right to go here. But eventually she has to send the kid to a different school. And I think another point to what Kaylee was saying is how young it starts because Kennedy started playing with her. And then the I think the friendship ended when they were playing a game and Kennedy was losing. And then she uses a racial slur to the other child as a way of lashing out. And I feel like she knew that that would cause the other child pain. It was like, oh, I'm losing, so I want to make you feel bad. Yeah, I think it just kind of all plays into this idea that in Kennedy's life, you know, she was always taught that she needs to be better in some way, even if that means resorting to playing the race card. Even if in reality, she doesn't really have a leg to stand on, you know, that's what she was taught to always do kind of thing. And it's also interesting to me to see, like, when Stella is trying to pass as white, this is what she reverts to. Like, she resorts to really pushing away the other race. Um, And I wonder if that's like part, that's what she thinks white people do in this time. And so she's just trying to really play the part. She's really performing on that aspect. Or if it is just her saying, well, the more I push this away as me personally, not necessarily as me as a white person, the more I push away this other part of me, the real part of me, the less focus will be on me. So I wonder like which one it is, but I think the extreme that Stella takes is what makes Kennedy the way she is. So, you know, we don't like Kennedy. I agree. <laughs> She's not great. But would I argue, would you guys argue it's kind of Stella's fault? Because I feel like it's kind of Stella's fault, um, which is a big bummer. <laughs> I'm fully behind that. I think it's Stella's fault because I think you know, especially when someone's young, I think you can argue once Kennedy grows up, she should start making her own opinions, challenging what her parents told her. But I think especially for those when she's young and maybe when she's a young adult before she has that confidence to go against her parents, I think a lot of what your parents tell you can can and does influence how you act towards other people and your idea of whether you're better than someone else. Yeah, and I feel like as someone who's been a teacher, sometimes I see that too in like the kids is they'll say things that I'm like, I don't think you actually believe this. I think that you're saying this because this is what you've been taught at home by your family. And so sometimes I think, you know, you have to make sure that you're letting people know when they're saying something that's not appropriate and say like well this is why this is not appropriate because I think that you know you spend so much time with your family what they say is going to influence you and if nobody shows you how to do something different or shows you a different way or shows you that that's not right you'll never know yeah I think there's a line too where like at a certain point it crosses over from okay, you're a child to, you need to be responsible. Like, not the children aren't responsible if they say those types of things, because like you said, like teachers need to step in. Other people need to say, don't say that. But I think once she becomes an adult, at a certain point, you can't blame Stella. Oh, yeah, I agree. That's 100% on her. But like when you're an adult, yeah, that's on you. Like you should educate yourself and you should know differently. I guess also, though, it's like if she's so ingrained in this way of thought, as we know by looking around and reading the news, whatever, it's very hard to approach these conversations in a way that someone who thinks the way that Kennedy does, that they'll be open to listening and open to changing their mind. Because I think also, you know, they run the risk of, say, someone like Kennedy feeling attacked and then they just like go even harder on their previous views. Man, yeah, this, I mean, I feel like all of this kind of just shows the just serious thought-provoking nature of this book, because I feel like it takes a really hard topic, and and this is where I think having multiple perspectives 
Sorry, Leah, but I think having multiple perspectives is good for a book like this because it takes a really hard topic and it looks at it from every single angle. I feel like here, like here you see Kennedy, which is the person like you're saying, Leanne, who, you know, would feel attacked and is, does feel attacked in the book when, you know, she's faced with her own feelings about race in her adulthood. You see Stella, who's got like a foot in both doors and is really trying to push away the trauma that her actual race has created for her and trying to take on this new persona. You see like Desiree, who's just been tried and true and like true to herself and just tried to be the best she could. And you see Jude, who is having to now cope with her mother's sister's decisions and kind of understand why those decisions were made. And because it's multiple perspective, you see all of those arguments being made for each perspective and how the other arguments affect those people. Um, So yeah, I actually, I mean, going back to a question from before, I think this book needed to be multiple perspective and I think it's better for it. I would agree. I think that the reason why the multiple perspectives work for this book is exactly what Rihika said. And I think that's why I personally think there's a space for those types of books. I just think that like not every book like is enhanced by it in the way that this book was. I thought something that was interesting to stepping a little bit away from race was how there was a narrative about Reese who is transgender in this book because I think there's a lot of conversation in the book world about having people's stories be told and how um, in the past a lot of times they haven't been but it doesn't mean that people didn't exist at that time and seeing as that this is partly you know a historical novel um, it starts in the 1950s I don't remember exactly what years Reese is introduced, but I thought that was something important to discuss. So one of the things that I have to say is I really like that they told Reese's story. But one thing that I did read was I was reading comments on Goodreads, which, you know, is a thing in and of itself. Could be a hit or miss. Exactly. But one of the comments that I had read was talking about how they felt like the book compared Stella's passing over as white was like being compared to Reese's transition and how they didn't like that. And I thought that that was interesting because I personally, when I read the book, did not connect those two events together. Is that something that you two connected? I did not connect that. So that's super interesting. Do here, I think it makes me rethink parts of the book, I guess, in a different way. But yeah, interesting. I didn't connect it either. I think part of that for me could have been because Stella was not white. She was acting what she thought was white. And to me, if Reese was transgender and transitioning to be a man, in my head, it's like, He wasn't passing as a man. Like, that's who he was. And to me, I feel like that's what made it different. But I am also not in either one of these communities. So it could be a completely different take if you are a part of the community. See, I kind of had a similar reaction to you, Leanne, is I was like, well, Reese actually is trans. So I, I agree with what you said. I feel like you put it very well. Yeah, I agree. I do think that your comment about the Goodreads uh, review or comment, whatever it's called, kind of ties to that question from the reading guide where it says that Reese takes a new wardrobe and role, but it's not a costume. Where, to me, Stella's passing does feel more, like, performative and more costume-like. Yeah, I would agree with that. Because I think, like, for Stella's passing, I think you can always kind of see some of that struggle in her passing where it's like, well, I want to be friends with Loretta from across the street. Well, I still want to be in contact with Desiree and my mom and like know what's going on and take care of them. 
Whereas I feel like for Reese, it's just, this is who I am, you know? So there's not that, I feel like the struggle is not the same kind of struggle, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. I think it is, yeah, a different struggle for sure for Reese. And kind of like Leanne said, I'm not a part of any of these groups, so I don't fully understand. Um, So that's definitely something I implore everybody to kind of read up on and listen and read authors who have a better perspective on it. But I, yeah, I think there is that there's, there's fear in both camps between Reese and Stella, but Stella's fear is almost like, I don't know. Stella's fear is almost coming from a place of like meanness, both to herself and others where Reese is looking for kindness for himself and others. Definitely. I don't know. I'm not a part of either of those groups either. So I second what you all have said. I would recommend that you read up on it if it's something you're interested in and listen to people who are parts of those communities. I think before we close out, since we spent a lot of time talking about Stella and uh, Kennedy, a little bit about Jude, there is a question in that guide about Desiree and how she returns to this place that she kind of thought that she would never go back to and didn't really want to go back to. and. Why do you think she stayed? Like, I think for me, it seemed like a lot of it was circumstances, right? Because her mom was there. There was a house there. And then eventually the mom's older, so she cares for the mother. Like, I wonder if if there were different circumstances, would she leave again? Or it's like, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting was like, if there's this place that you always wanted to get out of. And then you end up back there and that's where you stay. I just think it's interesting. Yeah, I I do think it's interesting. I think for me, I understood this from like a oldest daughter perspective almost. I personally would not want to go back home and, you know, be in my hometown. But I, you feel this obligation to take care of your parents, even if you know, whether or not your parents were good or bad to you, you almost feel bad in those moments. I get that too, where um, I think because I'm an only child. So I do sometimes think of these at a certain point, like I'm only going to want to be so far away. Yeah, I feel that too, because I'm the only daughter of my siblings. Um. And the other day, my parents were like, yeah, we put you as like the person who would be in charge of our healthcare well-being in our will. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so I, I guess I'm the one in charge of it. So, you know, I think there's definitely that pressure where it's like you have this want to go out and explore the world, but also, you know, that you're going to need to be there for your family. I think some of it, too, is like a time thing, like the longer you're in a place, the more comfortable. So they first ran away when they were 16. You're fairly young. Theoretically, your parents would be fairly young. There's nothing really keeping you somewhere. And then once once Desiree returns, everybody's older. She has a kid. So I don't know. I feel like maybe she just kind of got comfortable. She had the job at the diner. Yeah, I think... I don't know. I like I feel like the older I get, the more I miss home. Even though when I was at home, like when I was in my hometown growing up, I didn't necessarily like being there and I was always like I'm going to move away and I'm going to travel the world and do all these things. And you know, like in you know, I I think that maybe it's distance and time too because if you Think about it, Stella also eventually comes back, you know, because of that distance and time and like she's done her own things. And there's like a comfort of home, even if that home was bad. There's like a comfort of where you grew up 
it makes me think, I feel like I have so many analogies today for some reason, but it makes me think of that. There's a Ben Rector song called Old Friends. And it's all about how you can move away and make your best friends as you grow up. But there's like nothing like those childhood friends who knew like what kind of bike you rode and like could dial your number just from memory and like could just drive to, you know, like ride their bike or skateboard to your house. And those like childhood memories are more like embedded into, I think, everybody's mind, whether or not they're good or bad. And I think as you grow older, you're either trying hard to run away from those memories or you're kind of holding on. And I think it just depends on which one. So when you go back, it's kind of hard to leave, even if you're not enjoying yourself. And I think there's something to be said, too, about a support system. Like, for example, when Desiree moved back, she did have a young child, right? And to have a support system like maybe your mom who's able to help take care of the kid. Having that support system is something that's really important. And I feel like for a lot of people, there's like the support system that is your family is one that will be with you for a lifetime. Whereas friends might come and go, but your family is always going to be there. Yeah. And I think for people who maybe don't have as great of a relationship with their original family. I think even when you grow up and you have friends that become your family, you almost always are questioning it a little bit. At least, you know, in my experience, you kind of question it. You're like, but these people aren't my blood. So they they could leave. And that also kind of draws you towards your like hometown, whatever it may be. And I almost feel like, because I used to wonder, this is totally random, but I used to wonder like why people stayed in their college towns, (laughs) you know, like I used to, because I went to a college town that was like in the middle of nowhere, Texas, and it didn't make any sense why all these people who were graduating chose to stay in the middle of, like there was nothing in that town, you know, and I always was like, oh, I would never be the person who you know, would move back to my college town. And then like, as I grow up, I'm like, man, I really miss being in that town with all of my people. And, you know, I miss those times a lot. And I think all of my college friend group feels the same way. So it it's just funny how much as you grow older, you kind of like realize the things that people who were older than us told us and you were like absolutely not and now I'm just like oh I get it I really did need to like I don't know stretch more because now I could like my hips grown with every like movement whenever I sit up and it's just like what happened to me I was so young yeah I think it's also part of maturing though like It's kind of like realizing that success can come in a lot of different ways. There's not something that makes someone more successful than another because it's different for everyone. That's a really good way to put it, for sure. But it's hard, I think, when you... I I think like a saying that sticks with me throughout life is that it's always the loudest voice that makes the biggest impact. And I think that could be good or bad. And I think as we grow up, it is bad in the sense of like self-confidence, you know, because you forget that success is different for different people. I remember like when I was maybe like 20, 21 or something, I thought, or I told myself like what success would be for me is if I was like sitting in my home home that I owned by myself someday and it was like raining outside and I had a bunch of animals you know in a beautiful garden and I was like folding clean white sheets and I could just look outside and be like huh like I've made it (laughs) you know and I still think that's kind of like what I want my success to be like that like feeling of like true ultimate like contentness you know but I also grew up with people who were like, I want to be president of the United States and they're still going for it, you know? And I'm just in my head, I'm like, that sounds so stressful. Yeah. 
I guess on that note, do you think any of these characters are content, like say at the end of the book, content with where their lives are? Ooh, I think Jude is. I think Jude, she struggled where she struggled and she had to come to terms with things when necessary, but she got to where she wanted to be and she's working hard to keep going. And I think for Jude, that is contentness. And I feel like she's also very sure of herself and who she is as a person, which I really liked. Like she feels very authentic. I feel like for the other characters, I feel like they don't necessarily have that contentment because Kennedy is still struggling with who she is and how what she's found out about her family plays into who she is as a person. I think that Desiree is always going to be, I think she's always going to be not content as long as Stella is not with her. I think it's like missing the other half of her. And I think that Stella, to some extent, feels the same way. And I feel like for Stella, it's very much a struggle of feeling like she's living a lie or feeling like she's not even like, uh, well, I don't know, not even like living a lie, but mostly that she's not able to be authentic and true to herself. I agree with what both of you have said already. I think as I was making that question up on the fly, I think Jude is who popped into my head. For the reasons already said, but I think, I don't know if part of that is because Jude had an understanding, like she knew there was the missing on and she knew who Kennedy was. So I think, I'm wondering if that, like having that knowledge as a foundation, even if she had to struggle, like allowed her to get through to the other side. And like, um, like where he was saying, like she got where she wanted to go. Like she got to med school. She's going on her career so I don't know good for Jude I think that's a good question too because it also plays into the fact that like Kennedy didn't know until Jude told her and so I think that that does lead to a lot of her discontentment is she feels like she has all these questions that she wishes she had answers to I think it's pretty clear that we would all recommend the book is there a specific reader that you think would enjoy it the most That's a good question. I think I, for fans of like Barbara King Solver, I would obviously recommend because Poisonwood Bible has stuck with me, guys. It really has since high school. Yeah, so thank you to my high school literature teacher for that one. But I guess I would recommend it for people who are interested in a more like thought-provoking novel that I would argue is like historical fiction. Um, People who maybe have done some nonfiction work in this space of like race and like just racial identity um, and want to see it in a more fiction setting. I think that's also a good group of people. But honestly, if you are like me and don't normally necessarily read these sorts of books, but we're just enticed by the cover, go for it, read it. Because I wouldn't say it's necessarily like a difficult read as far as like the, you know, the words it uses and all that kind of stuff. It is a book that I think a lot of people probably like ages like 16, 18 upward can like sit down and like read and understand. And then the question is more the the themes and the Um, things that happen within the book and how that is kind of thought through in each person's mind. But I think it's an important book that I think everyone should at least try to pick up and read at some point. I would agree with everything that you said. So our next book club is going to be The Paris Bookseller by Carrie Maher, and that will be dropping on March 6th. We hope you enjoyed our discussion on the Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. If you've read this book, we'd love to hear what you have to say. So you can DM us on Instagram or send us an email. Thank you to Rahika for joining us. It's always fun chatting about books. And don't forget to rate and review Zillennial Podcasts on Apple Podcasts.
You can find us at Zillennials Podcast on Instagram or email us at zillennialspodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to hit the subscribe button and stay a while. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.